Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Ever feel like somebody's watching you? Well, it turns out you're not exactly imagining things. I mean, there probably isn't somebody actually there, but there might be something called a phantom presence, and your brain is creating that sensation. Dr. Ben Alderson Day is an associate professor of psychology at Durham University and the author of Presence, The Strange Science and True Stories of the Unseen Other. And thank you for joining us this morning. Oh, well, thank you for having me. How common is this feeling, this feeling of kind of being watched it's hard to put a precise number on it because it's quite a hard feeling to describe. But we know from other, say, hallucinatory phenomena that it tends to affect between 5 and 15% of adults in their lifetime. And for this particular feeling, this sense of phantom presence, you uh, get these in situations like sleep paralysis, which affects about kind of 7% of adults. So uh, those are kind of rough ideas at the moment. But really, the science of felt presence is only just starting. Okay, and so what does it mean exactly? Like, what's ha- am I being watched or is there something going on in my brain? Uh, it could be a combination of things. We certainly have some models now for understanding how our brains can create this feeling. So uh, scientifically, we tend to call it felt presence and define it as the feeling that someone is close by without any clear sensory evidence. So it's not just about hearing a voice in the other room and thinking, ah, oh, maybe somebody's there. It's really like a, just a very basic feeling in your bones that uh, somebody's nearby. And actually, we know from, say, case studies of people who have had damage to their brain or even brain stimulation experiments that actually you can induce just this feeling on its own of suddenly there being like a shadow figure there, kind of maybe mimicking your uh, body position or something like that. So it's it's definitely this kind of standalone thing. And it seems to, in many cases, come from the mind. Um, and we've got some thoughts about why that happens, too. OK, why does it happen? Well, if you look at the areas of the brain that are mostly involved, a lot of them are integrating uh, information from a variety of senses to give us an idea of where our bodies are in space. We all have this capacity. We're used to talking about the five senses, but actually we have many more forms of sensory information, including something called proprioception, so the feeling of where your muscles are in space, you know, where your limbs are. Even if you shut your eyes, you have a vague sense of, say, where your hands should be or your feet should be. And it seems to be that if we disrupt some of those cues, that kind of integration of information, then you can actually end up with some pretty unusual situations, including people feeling like there's actually a a duplicate body or a phantom body near to them. Um, And that's true of the areas of the brain, too. If we look at the bits that are patching together all these cues right at the same time to give us a sense of body position, if you disrupt those areas, then you get this experience. Right. It seems to me, though, you're also kind of dispelling the idea of of ghosts, Dr. Alderson Day, because that isn't that the feeling that people report when they think that maybe there's a presence there with them? It could overlap with some of those accounts. Certainly for a lot of people would assume it's the, the stuff of ghost stories. I think one key difference is often when people talk about those sorts of experiences, 
they're talking about very specific places or situations in which they might suddenly experience what feels like a ghost to them. The thing with these presences is that often people get them recurrently and they seem like they're tethered to them as if they've got a kind of umbilical cord, like it's your own personal ghost in some way. Um, and we see it pop up in clinical disorders like schizophrenia or Parkinson's disease. We see it happening around the boundaries of, of sleep, as I mentioned. Um, it can happen in grief and bereavement too, and even survival situations but it seems to be something more about us as people rather than you know your, your classic haunted house so i think there's overlap there but i i'm certainly not it's not my job to dispel everybody's uh, unusual <laughs> ghost stories would you say that it's more about what's happening inside of us as opposed to what's happening around us for to a large extent although we can never take out of the equation the way in which our environment affects us so um some of the most famous presences are, are called uh the third man or the third man effect and they're really uh, common in like survival or endurance situations in which people are really pushed to their limits so i'm talking about kind of antarctic explorers people climbing everest this sort of thing very often they describe being accompanied by a companion that often you know just gets them over the line or saves them in the nick of time they might not be able to see or hear this companion but they're not alone really at crucial moments and there sure it, it it seems to be most likely something to do with their own minds but it's also about the pressure that they're put under and it's how our brain responds to stress and adversity oh that's so interesting okay so then now that you have this hint of this going on there like where do you take your research how do you look at this I think a big thing that we're trying to understand now is whether we're just talking about one phenomenon that needs one, say, scientific or model and explanation that could unify all these different instances, or if we need more than one explanation. So I mentioned uh, schizophrenia before. I'm mm -hmm. a psychosis researcher, primarily by background, and I had people come to me saying, you know, I hear voices a lot of the time, but often I can feel that the voices are there even when they're not speaking. And that, to me, posed a puzzle because it didn't seem like our general theories of schizophrenia and psychosis could really explain that and um, it's uh, so when we turn to that context we've got to think look what's the right explanation to fit to that is it something to do with that bodily sense body perception as I was mentioning or is it something else because often people have a sense of the presence having an identity maybe even having kind of intentions towards the person in some way um, and for that we really need to think about how the brain represents other people we need to think about what psychologists call social cognition um, and so there we've got almost like two competing theories right we've got a kind of body theory mm -hmm. and we've got something which is more about how we relate to one another and, and when we, we turn to a uh, um, an example like psychosis, we've got to weigh up, you know, what's the what's the explanation that really works here that might help us, you know, develop different psychotherapy tools or just support people who are distressed by this experience. Right. I don't even know how you start to look at this. Like, how do you how do you figure this out? How do you map the brain in this way? Uh, there are there are techniques in which uh, you can induce this experience. Um, so uh, there's a lab in Geneva led by um, a neurologist called Olaf Blanker, who's been studying this for a long time. And they have something um, which in, the, in my book I dubbed the presence robot, which is this ingenious contraption where if what you have to do is you sit down on a stool and you're asked to shut your eyes and poke into thin air with your hand in front of you in kind of a random motion as if you're you know trying to put in your pin number but you've forgotten it and you just have to keep on going and keep on trying and what you, your hand is in a kind of aperture and tracking those movements of your hand in front of you there's a 
there's a robot behind you prodding you in your back at exactly the same time as your own hand movements, completely in sync. And after a while, what you do is you get a sense that actually it's you touching your own back because your brain takes in the information of what you can see and what you can feel in terms of your own movements. But the touch feedback you're getting is is happening on your own back. So this is a well-known example of a kind of full body or whole body illusion where our brain kind of fills in the gaps and goes, okay, the best way to make sense of this is it's me touching my own back. What happens next is the ingenious bit. What they start to do is make some of those touches asynchronous so they don't quite line up. And for some people, when that happens, they get a complete shudder down their spine. They might laugh, they might turn around because they suddenly feel like a presence is there, literally a ghost in the machine. So, um, and what we can do is, you know, you can study people who are susceptible to that and then look at how their brains are different, what kind of networks are involved. People with Parkinson's who are really susceptible to presences are particularly susceptible to this presence robot as well. So it might sound pretty outlandish um, and uh, even kind of a bit wacky, but actually, you know, we have the tools to try and tease apart how our brains kind of construct our sense of selves and the sense of the other, the phantom other. Oh my goodness, that was fascinating. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Not at all. Thank you for having me. It's Dr. Dr. Ben Alderson-Day, who's an associate professor of psychology at Durham University and the author of a book called Presence, The Strange Science and True Stories of the Unseen Other. This is Mornings with Simi. The entire history of humanity, only 24 people have actually seen the full circle of the earth. And now a Canadian is going to be part of the very next people to see that the first non-American to do it. It's a big deal. Yeah, it's a big deal. Jeremy Hansen, and that is the name of the 47-year-old astronaut who's been selected to become the first non-American to venture all the way to the moon. So how big of a deal is this? Well, as, as the Prime Minister said there, first time we've tried to do this in more than 50 years. Artemis 2 is scheduled for launch potentially in a year. We're going to learn all about how significant this is with the help of someone who knows all too well about the dark reaches of space. Ron Guerin is a former NASA astronaut and the author of a recently released book called Floating in Darkness. He flew to the International Space Station twice and he joins us now. Ron, thanks for being here this morning. Good morning, Sonny. Now, Ron, how big of a deal is this in the space community? Uh, It's a pretty big deal. Yeah, I I mean, as you said, we haven't uh, been to the moon in over 50 years. Um, And the difference this time is we're going to stay. Um, You know, the last time it was basically proving that we could do it. um, And now we want to set up a permanent human presence on the moon. And this is the first really big step. What was it like for you? Like even going up to the International Space Station, you went up there twice, right? How long were you there for? Uh, six months in total. Oh, wow. Okay. What's it like up there? <laughs> well, it's, a, it's, got a, it's got a good view. Um, it's, a, it's a wonderful place to live. It really is. Um, it is an orbiting laboratory, and uh, scientific experimentation is being conducted on there 24 hours a day. 365 days a year, and it is a, in a remarkable place. It's a remarkable place in a lot of ways, and one of the biggest reasons, and what really struck me while I was up there, is the international cooperation that it represents, um, where you have 15 nations all working together, uh, like we should be doing on the Earth, but we're unfortunately not doing on the Earth. It's a, it's a really shining example of international cooperation. How do you prepare for something like this, Ron? How did you prepare? Well, um, NASA does a really good job in CSA and all the other space agencies of preparing their crews. Um, it takes years of training 
to prepare for each of the each of the missions that you fly on. And um, but there, you know, beyond that, beyond the formal training, there's also you know just getting ready to, to leave the, the planet for months at a time, or in the case of, of the Artemis II crew, going farther than anybody's ever gone before. And um, that there's a, there's a lot that goes into that, and it's not just the formal training. Right. I was wondering, they can teach you all the science stuff, right? But can they teach yeah. you what happens once you get up there and you look down and you think, boy, I, f- I, I feel pretty insignificant right now. <laughs> Well, there there really is no training, at least that I went through, for the you know psychological, spiritual, you know, uh, emotional experience of seeing the planet in the blackness of space. And the Artemis two crew, they're going to go way beyond the moon. About uh, I think it's ten thousand four hundred kilometers past the moon, uh, or ten thousand kilometers past the moon, and they're going to be able to see the moon and the Earth uh, out the window of the spacecraft. And that's going to be a profound experience. I, I guarantee you that. Yeah. Just even thinking about that for a second, I don't think any of us can actually grasp how profound that actually is. So it might, there must be quite a camaraderie then among um, astronauts who've gone into space. Yes. It's a small, small community. <laughs> and, you know, the common bond that we all share is that having that experience, having to, the experience of seeing the true unity that, that we as a species are called to uh, when you look at the earth from, from that vantage point. And, you know, everything, all these things that, you know, we think are so important that, that we fight over, that we quarrel over, uh, kind of blur into insignificance uh, from, that, from that vantage point. And that's a really bonding experience. Um, and so it's a, it's a pretty tight community. Is that why you founded that humanitarian organization when you retired from NASA? Um, well, actually, I, I think you're referring to the Man Energy Foundation, which I, I actually founded as I was, you know, while I was still an active astronaut. And yes, I think that's a, a big part of it. You know, you feel uh, a commitment, a commitment to, you know, hopefully help make life on our planet as beautiful as it looks from space, because you really get hit in the gut by a sobering contradiction between the beauty of our planet and the unfortunate realities of life on a planet for a significant number of its inhabitants. But you also have this feeling of hope that it doesn't have to be this way, that we we can make it better. And I think uh, that's one of the big reasons why we explore space is to, is to get that vantage point. When you hear about what um, uh, Jeremy is going to be going through, what Jeremy Hansen is going to be going through, it must be exciting for him. Yeah, especially since this is his first flight. So <laughs> I mean, this is... Uh, wow, what a first is, flight, uh, right? Yeah, this is this is quite a quite a first flight, but uh, he's a great guy, very capable, and uh, he's gonna he's gonna do amazing. What would be your advice to him? Savor every single moment of it. Try and try and capture it as it, as it's happening. I mean, not to be cliche, but to live in the moment as it's happening, because you know, we're, astronauts on a crew are really busy, and it's really easy to just get focused on your job and what you have to do. And it's important and you need to do that, but you also have to find those moments where you could just, um, I, I almost said step back or float back <laughs> and, and, <laughs> right. and just really try and process, you know, what's happening, where you are, what you're doing, the significance of it. Um, and otherwise it'll, it'll pass you by and then you'll be, find yourself later wishing that you had, had done that. And, and, kept a little bit more um, for the future, I guess. That's, there's a bigger message there, I think, for all of us, though, Ron. I think we could all do a little yeah. learning to embrace the exactly. moment, can't we? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. We're, we're all 
surrounded every moment of every day by miraculous uh, wonder and beauty, and we, we've learned how to take it for granted. So true. Ron, thank you for your time this morning. It's my pleasure, Cindy. Appreciate that. Ron Guerin is a former NASA astronaut, went up to the International Space Station twice, as a matter of fact, author of the recently released book called Floating in Darkness. And you know what? I I feel like what Ron's experience was, a lot of astronauts must go through that. You go up there, you see, you look back, you see the Earth, you're working up there in such isolation. And I think he's described it as the transformative power of spaceflight. And I, I'm sure that happens to all astronauts when they go up there. And the newest, uh, this big one, this is a big deal. This is Jeremy Hansen, a 47-year-old Canadian who has been selected to become the first non-American to venture as part of the Artemis II crew uh, all the way to the moon. First time we have done this in more than 50 years. Uh, and that's scheduled for launch Late this year, early next year, but obviously now there's a lot of interest in this now that NASA has decided the moon is going to be a big deal for them, right? This is going to, I think, revive a lot of interest uh, for sure in space flight and space exploration. We always have, though, still had some interest in that, haven't we? This is Mornings with Simi. Things have gone downhill over the last 15 or 20 years here. Unrealistic timelines for truckers to get their shipments from one port to another. There needs to be a deep dive into who are the worst offenders and start appropriately punishing them. Okay, so that is the mayor of Clearwater, Merlin Blackwell, expressing his frustration over another incident caught on camera of dangerous driving by a big semi-truck driver. This time, you know, driver crossing the double yellow line into oncoming traffic just to get ahead of somebody, all caught on dash cam footage. Now, there was a big crackdown on this, right? There was more enforcement on this the last time we saw a couple of these uh, situations. And yet here we see it's still happening. Now, that was the mayor saying what he thinks needs to happen. Let's talk now with Dave Earl, who's the president of the BC Trucking Association. Dave, good morning. Good morning. So what do you think when you see about this, when you see these videos, like what goes through your mind? Yeah, I, I think I share probably everybody's frustration. Um, there's just simply no reason. There's no excuse. There is no reason to see that type of behavior. And honestly, Simi, what surprises me is these drivers should know there's video everywhere. Like This isn't something that's not going to go unnoticed and unpunished. So yeah. uh, I'm just perplexed. But, you know, um, sometimes I guess you just can't fix behavior. Okay, so if that's the case, then if drivers should know, as you say, that there is video everywhere and truck drivers have dash cam videos too, right? So is, yeah. it, is it a case that there's not enough consequences? There's not enough punishment? No, I think it's more than that, Simi. I think what we when, and one of the things that the mayor barrier talked about uh, was the unreasonable expectation. And to be very fair to the drivers and to the carriers that are out there, a lot of this begins with the customer, you know, and, you know, where the, the demands that are being placed on individuals are simply not achievable. And we really need to have an honest conversation with the entire transportation logistics supply chain network, you know, to really set some stand, not some standards, but some reasonable expectations about what can be done. This is the time to do that, though, isn't it, Dave? Because it feels like we are resetting expectations about a lot of things in society. And why not admit that, okay, you're not necessarily going to get same day shipping? 
Oh, absolutely. But what we are battling, Simi, is the commodification of transportation. Um, you know, customers now, you and I, when we go to the store, we, we think about what's there and we think about how it's got there a little bit. But when you're a shipper, you're not thinking necessarily about who am I contracting with? Are they a good company? You know, am I asking for their detailed carrier profile so I know who I'm hiring? Um, am I asking them about their fuel management program so I know if they're working towards decarbonization? That's the conversations that we have with shippers, but uh, we're just one voice and, and we need more. When you say the commodification of shipping, what does that mean exactly? What that means is rather than looking at the total value, so am I you know, working with a company that treats their people well? Am I working with a company that is obeying the law and doesn't have a lot of moving violations? Instead, I look at it and say, well, are they 50 bucks cheaper? And so what we've seen over many years is the focus has been on that 50 bucks cheaper instead of are they actually a good company to work with, treating their people well and doing the right thing. Right. And I guess it's just margins are so squeezed right now, aren't they? They are, you know, and they're squeezed everywhere. So, you know, it, it's, it, it's just a, a really difficult confluence of events. But it doesn't mean we sit back and just, you know, wring our hands and say, what do we do? What do we do? Um, there's lots of steps that can be taken. There's lots of steps that are being taken, both by industry and by regulators, you know, and, and we'll continue to work and make sure that these types of incidents just don't happen. Okay, so how do we do that? I know that there was recently an enforcement blitz on this, wasn't there? Yes, certainly on that that stretch of highway in particular, and they do it around the province. I mean, but the other part of it to me is officers can't be everywhere all the time. And you and I, when we drive our light vehicles, I mean, your listeners that are driving behind the wheels now, um, you know, I invite them to reflect on their own habits. Um, you know, we don't always all have the best of them. Um, certainly, not all of us make the type of decision that we saw on the dash cam video, um, but we really need to treat the activity of driving with much more care and attention than we are accustomed to. And that's a culture shift, and that's what we need to start talking about. But Dave, I appreciate that you're bringing the bigger picture to this, right? This is more than just bad drivers. Oh, very much so, Simi. I mean, one of the things that we look at when we you look at the hours of service regulation itself, it specifically talks to all parties. It talks to a driver must not disobey. A dispatcher, a company must not encourage or influence. A customer must not make demands on the driver. And yet we don't have those conversations. So it, it's really time that we start to take a step back and say, what are we trying to achieve when we're moving the goods that you and I rely on every day uh, around our province and around our country? Right. And do you also put the message out to your truckers to say, hey, listen, you guys, you're being watched here. Oh, Absolutely. Absolutely. And what's interesting, I mean, when we talk about uh, you know, the use of dash cams, uh, just on an informal quick survey of our members, it's about three quarters of them that are already using outward facing dash cams. So, again, I was, I was surprised because I'm thinking, you know, the driver knows, he knows he's going to be you know, doing this. Like, what, what are you thinking? So, you know, something awry there. And uh, like I said, it's time for that bigger conversation to say, what's that, what's that reason? Why did you do that? What kind of pressure are you under and where is it coming from? Well, good points. Dave, thank you for that. Well, thanks for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, more now on the continuing coverage of foreign influence in our country. Global News has uncovered evidence and examples of Beijing potentially coercing Chinese Canadians to spy on others in their community. 
How do they do it? Alleged victims say Chinese police are treating their family members in China as hostages and threatening their safety. Jeff Semple, senior correspondent for Global News, has been looking into these allegations and joins us now. Good morning, Jeff. Hey, good morning, Simi. So what can you tell us about this situation? Yeah, so we spoke to a number of alleged victims of this Beijing spying operation here in Canada. And you know, for the most part, they are members of the Chinese diaspora here in Canada uh, who have been outspoken and speaking out against the Chinese Communist Party and attending protests condemning Beijing's human rights record, including a Uyghur activist named Mehmet Toti, um, who escaped China 30 years ago and has been very outspoken ever since about China's persecution of the Uyghur minority in China. Um, and he says that he believes that he has been followed, his activities have been monitored, and back in January of this year, he was campaigning ahead of a vote by the federal government to bring 10,000 Uyghur refugees here to Canada. And just before that vote, Mehmet Todi says that he received a strange phone call one morning from a man who identified himself as a Chinese police officer. Now, this officer told Mehmet that he had some news about his family. And Mehmet then recorded the phone call and played this tape for us so we could listen to it. And in the conversation, the police officer tells Mehmet that his mother and his sisters, who'd been living in China and who Mehmet hadn't heard from in a few years, were dead. The police officer said that they had died, all of them, from strokes. Now, his sisters were previously healthy and, and in their 40s. The officer then told Mehmet that his uncle, whom he was quite close with, had also had a stroke, uh, had survived, and his uncle was in hospital. And then the police officer put Mehmet's uncle on the phone so that he could speak with him. And Mehmet's uncle sounded quite weak on the phone and confirmed that the other family members had been killed. So this tragic, extraordinary phone call. And Mehmet believes that it was a clear message from Chinese police, the Chinese Communist Party, for him to stop his activism. Have a listen to Mehmet Todi. And you and your family members are paying the ultimate price. That is the reality we are talking about. And intimidation, threat, harassment, hijacking your family members, and pushing you to live under the Chinese shadow, even you are in free country. Okay, so then Jeff, who are these alleged spies who are, you know, help trying to help the Chinese government, or are they like, are they being coerced into helping the Chinese government? Like, who are these people? Yeah, that's it. We spoke to a number of them here in Canada who say that uh, they have been coerced by Beijing into spying. Or Chinese police and, and Chinese Communist Party on their own community members here in Canada. And they are just ordinary members of the community. I mean, we spoke with uh, one Chinese Canadian who lives in the Toronto area who says that he was coerced into spying on his landlord, who is a prominent pro-democracy activist named Sheng Shui. Um, and he said that if he didn't spy on her, that Chinese police threatened his family in China, said that they would repossess their homes. Um, we spoke to a truck driver in Montreal named Erkin Carban, who came to Canada 20 years ago, but he went back to China in 2013. He's a Uyghur. He wanted to, in, to see his mother, who was elderly and sick. But when he arrived back in China, he says police picked him up. They brought him in for questioning, and they said that he would only be allowed to see his mother in China if he agreed to spy for Beijing. And they wanted him specifically to report information on several Canadian Chinese activists, uh, including Mamet Todi, who we heard from earlier. So he says that he was introduced with it to his quote-unquote handler in China, 
uh, and that that handler then called him every week for information for six months. Now, Eric and Kerbat said he only fed him false and, and irrelevant information, and after a while, he stopped calling. Uh, but even now, I mean, he says that he's viewed by some of his community and his Uyghur community in Montreal with suspicion because they just they don't know whom they can trust. Wow. Okay. So I know tonight on Global National, you're going to share some kind of firsthand accounts from people who say they have been targeted here in Canada for speaking out against the Chinese government. So what what more can we expect to hear, Jeff? Yeah. In some cases, we met people who you know don't have uh, close ties or family back in China anymore. Uh, and who have been targeted directly here in Canada. So one woman, Michelle Jung, who's, uh, who lived for years there in Vancouver, she's a Falun Gong practitioner, and she says that her family back in China have been killed or gone missing. Uh, some are in labor camps. And you know, 20 years ago, she started speaking out about their plight. As a result, she says that she was targeted. She says that her car windows were smashed in. She says a man banged on her door threatening her children through the door. And she says that human feces were dumped mm. all over her apartment balcony. So just a series of horrible events uh, that she believes is linked to her activism. But of course, she has no proof of that. She's reported all this to police to no avail. And, you know, many of these community members said that they have been raising the alarm for years about this. But they're hoping that given the recent revelations about foreign interference in Canada, that those cries for help might finally be heard. All right, more on Global National tonight. Jeff, thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. The District Attorney of New York, under the auspices and direction of the Department of Injustice in Washington, D.C., was investigating me for something that is not a crime, not a misdemeanor. Pretty sure his lawyers would like him to stop talking about the case. That is former U.S. President Donald Trump there who has talked widely about this situation. The fact that he is now facing more than two dozen charges uh, related to hush money payments that were made back in 2016. How is this all going to be unfolding today? Well, New York City is on high alert and that is where we find our Global News Washington correspondent Reggie Giacchini this morning. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. Okay, so where are you and what's going on? So I am standing directly outside uh, of the courthouse in the same position that I was standing two weeks ago when the former president said that his arrest was imminent. The difference this time around is that the former president's arrest is imminent. He is expected to be in this courthouse within the next uh, half an hour for the beginning of uh, what will be his processing. Within two and a half hours, we expect the former president to have charges read against him. As you mentioned, there will be dozens upon dozens, according to the reporting. And that arraignment will only last a couple of minutes before he takes off here. But this is a huge moment. This is a monumental moment. It is a historic moment. And it once again puts Donald Trump in the center of the story. Okay, so this is the first time this has ever happened to a U.S. president. What is the security like, Reggie? What are the crowds like? So uh, on the security situation, uh, the level of barricades that are blocking off the courthouse have uh, increased since I've been here about 48 hours ago. There are three different levels of barricades. Uh, It is like that around the courthouse. It is also like that uptown uh, outside of Trump Tower on Fifth Avenue. Uh, The crowds uh, have gathered. I will say that there are hundreds upon hundreds of members of the global media uh, that have gathered outside of this courthouse. But in the park that is right beside me, there is both a counter protest against Donald Trump and a protest for Donald Trump. 
that has taken over. There are several hundred people in there as well. Uh, there have been some skirmishes. There have been a few fights here and there. Uh, but ultimately, it has been relatively peaceful. Still, 34,000 members of the police department are on force. We could see hundreds of them just within kind of arm's reach from where I'm standing right now. Yeah, well, it is New York City, right? They know how to police this kind of stuff. So what have we learned about the charges? So the thing about that is we still don't fully know. There is some reporting that was um, that was put out overnight uh, that suggests that this could be roughly 34 charges linked to falsified documents, linked to potential fraud here, and that that may revert back to those hush money payments made to cover up alleged affairs, something that the former president has vehemently denied uh, for uh, for years, even though his legal team has made a couple of dancing stories about how those payments ultimately came to be. What we're waiting to find out is how this potentially could become a felony because the, the, the falsified documents are misdemeanors under New York law. But it's been reported Alvin Bragg may try to turn this into a potential campaign finance violation by saying a crime was committed to conceal another crime. If that happens, this could be a moment where the former president faces 34 criminal charges, each of which is considered a felony. And that in and of itself is going to be a historic moment. One the president will talk about inside the court. There's cameras allowed potentially inside the hallway, and he may try to talk about it tonight at his rally. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about that then. So how how like shut down is this process going to be? How strict is the judge being? So look, the, the judge is not allowing for broadcast cameras to be inside the courtroom, but we do understand that there will be some still photograph uh, still photographers inside. So the process will be. Um, recorded, and we will be able to see some still images of the president. We've also been told from the Trump team, though, that he may talk while he's inside uh, the hallways of the court, which leads us to believe that there may be some form of recording device that is available to the former president when he walks into the processing part uh, of of this kind of um, uh, judicial ordeal. Beyond that, we will then hear from the president possibly afterwards, but definitely tonight uh, by 8 o'clock when he holds his rally in Mar-a-Lago. The thing is, Simi, there's also a real possibility here that the former president could find himself under a gag order because he is putting, putting so many inflammatory comments out about the court, about the judge, and about the district attorney. If that happens, Donald Trump will have a much harder time, A, talking to his base about this case, but also trying to fundraise off of this case. Right. And that's what I'd heard is that this judge will be perhaps a bit of a stickler for that. Does that sound likely to happen? Well, look, the legal experts that I've spoken to say that it is not uncommon for a gag order to be put in place. And people within Trump's inner circle have seen that thing, uh, have seen a gag order happen, including Roger Stone, who went under a gag order during his trial. So it is a possibility and it could be a reality, given just the, the vitriol that the former president has used and put forth on his social media account and violating a gag order could ultimately land Donald Trump in contempt of court. So this could become problematic in several different ways for the former president if he can't talk about his case, if he can't fundraise his case, and then at the same time uh, making it impossible uh, to do anything beyond that, fearful that there could be additional legal ramifications. Right. That seems to be kind of the way this has been going right now, though, hasn't it? Has this increased support for the former president, do you think? Oh, absolutely. It has. There have been some polls out there that show independents have actually been moving backwards towards Donald Trump. The people who may have uh, uh, fled from him in the 2020 election, they appear to be going back. And it is more first time donors that are fundraising into the Trump campaign, which says that they've made something like four million dollars 
since the indictment came down. This is giving Donald Trump a significant political boost in the polls. It is also forcing members of the Republican Party to line up behind Donald Trump rather than being able to create a space for themselves, especially those who have an eye on 2024. And I spoke with a uh, political uh, expert from Brown University just a couple of days ago, and she said that if Republicans who are trying to get into the White House don't use this moment to their advantage, they ultimately will lose out to Donald Trump, who will not only suck the oxygen out in this moment, but ultimately be able to capitalize and take advantage of this, whatever the political outcome that he sees in the next couple of hours is. All right. Well, we wait to find out what happens. And Reggie, thank you. Thank you. That is Reggie Cicchini, our global news, normally Washington correspondent, but in New York City right now watching the events unfold there. It does sound like uh, a circus, though, doesn't it? I mean, you've got hundreds upon hundreds of members of the international media parked there in front of the courthouse. You've got hundreds upon hundreds of protesters there and counter-protesters there, or just people, I guess. And then you've got as well numerous, hundreds upon hundreds, again, uh, law enforcement trying to make sure they keep a lid on everything that is going on. Now, New York City has certainly seen uh, tense situations before, but this is a new one. It is the first time in American history they have seen something like this unfold in their city. So, yes, there will be a court appearance from former President Donald Trump this morning, but still unknown as to how much of that will be kind of made available to the public or seen by the public. Will the judge impose the gang or gag order? Those are the big questions here, and we will continue to cover that story for you today. Uh, but, yeah, you know, every time I think, well, we haven't seen anything quite like that before in the United States We have another haven't seen anything quite like that before. And that is what's unfolding there this morning. This is Mornings with Simi. Are you happy? How do we even measure something like that? Well, there are attempts to do it, especially with what's called the World Happiness Report. And the editor of that report, Dr. John Helliwell, the Professor Emeritus of Economics at the University of British Columbia, is with us now to talk about it. Good morning. Good morning. So tell me, why a world happiness report? Well, uh, we thought, we, we thought uh, when we produced the first one, which was to support a UN high-level meeting in 2012, following a UN resolution advising national governments to make happiness and well-being a centerpiece of their policies, uh, there was a broad desire to have further reports. So we've been producing them ever since, or now in our 11th report, quite clearly, uh, there was an absence of methodical data about how lives were valued by people in countries all over the world. But Dr. Halliwell, what is the methodical data? How do you measure something like happiness? It's done through the Gallup World Poll, and they have several questions that relate to how people are feeling about their lives. There are some measures that are called positive affect, uh, happiness, uh, and uh, negative affect, anger, anxiety, sadness. And then above all, an umbrella measure. Think about your life as a whole, with the best possible life as a 10 and the worst as a zero. How would you rate your life these days? And that's now measured by a thousand people every year in more than 150 countries in the Gallup World Poll. And so the World Happiness Report looks at many aspects of life and how people deal with it. But the core rankings that are made the focus of much news are really based on how people 
value their own lives. Okay, so where are the happiest places in the world? Well, it, one of the consequences of the report is it's changed the focus of international investigation um, from the richest countries to the happiest countries. And that's led to many, many people uh, turning up in the doorsteps of uh, various institutions uh, in Scandinavia, the Nordic countries, because all five of them tend to be in the top 10 uh, more or less every year. And what, it, what about it makes them in the top 10, though? Like, what do, you, what do you think are the factors that put them there? Well, one key example I often use is uh, there have been wallets dropped experimentally all over the world. And the places where the wallet is most likely to be picked up and returned are indeed in the Nordic countries. It makes people feel very good to live in a community when they think other people care for them and, of course, a community where they care for others because that's another thing that makes people happy is the ability to work with others for others. That is such a good others. test. That's such a good test, though, isn't it? Because it's a simple thing, but it tells you a lot about the people who live there. Exactly. So where did Canada rank on all this? Uh, Canada started out as number four, which is very high, and has gradually slipped over the last 10 years. We're 13th at the moment. Um, it's still in the first league in 150 countries, of course. Well, that's still pretty good, though. What scores slipped? Like, Could you tell from the data what Canadians are not as happy about? No, we can't. Um, but part of what was taking us up in, in the international comparisons in the previous years was what we call the quiet happiness revolution, whereby people living in Quebec had been systematically less happy than elsewhere in the country 30 years ago and have gradually caught up and are right at the head. So the Canadian average was brought up by the fast-growing happiness in Quebec. Well, that convergence has pretty well run its course now. So when you look at what binds the happy countries together, what were the factors, do you think, that were the biggest when it came to describing happiness? Well, we have a, a framework that we use to explain international differences in how people feel about their lives, and they include incomes and healthy life expectancy. They include generosity. They include trustworthiness. They include having someone to count on in times of trouble and uh, f freedom to make your key life decisions. And all of those uh, questions have the highest answers in the Nordic countries, which explains why they hmm. routinely turn out high. Now, Dr. Hillowell... Canada does pretty well, too. Yeah, I'm just looking at that. Actually, we weren't too bad on this. But, Dr. Hillowell, why is it so important? Like, why should governments pay attention to how happy its citizens are? Well, if you ask anybody in a reflective moment, and this was Aristotle who first said this, the best way of deciding how well a society is going is to ask the people who live there how their lives are going. And if you ask someone who is being elected what they'd like to do, well, they said they'd like to produce good lives for people. So if your objective is to make lives better for the people who've elected you, it's nice to know how they're doing. That is very, very true. And then uh, where can we improve, do you think? Uh, I think uh, one of the things is there's always a focus on governments. But in fact, most of the things that are really important to people are about life locally. It's what goes on in your workplace, on your street, with your neighbors, as you commute, 
as you face other people. It's a trick to essentially think differently about other people because we know from experiments that wallets are much more likely to be returned in Canada and everywhere else than you think they are. So change your thinking and say, that person I see down the street is not a danger to me. They're just a friend I haven't met yet. All right, good advice. Thank you so much for your time this morning. My pleasure. Have a happy day. You too. That is Dr. John Halliwell. He makes happiness really his work. Uh, He's a professor emeritus of economics at the University of British Columbia, but also editor of the World Happiness Report. Now, that is not just something they make up. That is, they collect data from countries all over the world to try to figure out the levels of satisfaction that people have. And they find that overall, life satisfaction of a population is dependent on a few things. The levels of pro-social behavior, okay, uh, the levels of health, and the prosperity of its people. And that all combines when they kind of break it down with their numbers and their data. And what they found was, and I'll give you the top 10, okay? So the top 10 uh, happiest countries, according to the World Happiness Report, number one, Finland, number two, Denmark, number three, Iceland, number four, Israel, Number five, the Netherlands, okay? That's the top five right there. And you know, those are the countries that you usually hear about. Number six was Sweden, and then Norway, Switzerland, Luxembourg, and New Zealand. That is the top 10. So Canada finds itself just out of the top 10, actually. Number 11 was Austria. Number 12 was Australia. And 13th is Canada. And then Ireland, United States, Germany, Belgium, Czechia, United Kingdom, and Lithuania. That is the top 20 there. So there are, you know, some countries where you think, oh, well, you would think that maybe they would have ranked a little bit higher on that list. Places like Spain, nope, they were 32nd. Italy, 33 on that list. Uh, You've got uh, places like Poland, 39. uh, Latvia, 41. Japan, 47 on the list here too. So there is a lot of data that goes into this. We have slipped, according to the World Happiness Report, over the last 10 years, but we are still at 13th when it comes to that. Now, would you agree with that? Would you say, yeah, you know, overall, we're still pretty good, that we still see good levels of pro-social behavior out there, um, health? I know there's so many concerns about our healthcare system right now. I'd be really curious to see over the next two years how these numbers uh, stack up. They do it every year, so we'll be checking back on that for sure.